so, John Lewis, um, uh, Nath put this uh, series of talks together, <coughs> and we've been looking at peacemakers, and I got the job of talking about John Lewis. <coughs> John Lewis, of course, if you just look up John on uh, the internet, you'll find that he runs some fantastic shops, and you can buy everything that you need for Christmas online. <coughs> but John Lewis, um, the real John Lewis was a much more inspiring person than you can possibly think. And just to introduce that whole thing, I'd like you to watch this little film. Let's, uh, uh, hang on, I've got, got to get rid of some paper here. And we watch, here it is. So the reason I um, put that together to show you is that people often think that the issue of civil rights in the States in the 50s and the 60s and to some extent ongoing is all to do with um, equality for black people. Actually, it was to do with something much, much bigger and, uh, and even more important than that, as you see from some of those slogans, coloured, Spanish, Mexicans. And you realise that what we remember as a piece of history is an ongoing battle for us today. Evil will always resurface in every generation, which is why we all need to be actively involved in politics, with a small p, if not with a big p. Because politics comes from the word, the Greek word, polis. And polis just means the city. And so politics are the affairs of the city, the affairs of society. We all must be actively involved. And if we're not, what happens is the borders of freedom are hemmed back, pushed back in, and so much is lost. So, Nath put this together, this series of peacemakers, and he gave me uh, the job 
of talking about John Lewis. And I'm really pleased, actually, Nathan, if you're there, because uh, John Lewis is an extraordinary hero of mine. Of course, when you talk about civil rights in the States, you think about the guy that you've already seen up there, Martin Luther King. But this man, John Lewis, his role in bringing about change was absolutely huge. Martin Luther King always referred to him as the boy from Troy because he came from uh, the town of Troy. And at 17, he wrote to uh, Martin Luther King. He didn't tell his parents who were sharecroppers. You know, a sharecropper is a really poor kind of farmer, a farmer that doesn't own the land, a farmer who rents the land and then has to pay back the landlord in a share of the crop when it's taken. To be a sharecropper, you had nothing. You were illiterate. No one cared about you. No one thought about you. So John grew up in a family like that. And um, he... Uh, at the age of 17, he took it into his head to write to Martin Luther King. And the extraordinary thing is that Martin wrote back to him and the two of them became friends. They met and became friends. And until Martin Luther King's dying day, he called John Lewis, who's still alive, the boy from Troy. So the best way of telling the boy from Troy's story is to allow him to tell it for himself. John Lewis today is a member of Congress. He's 79 years old, and this is him telling his story. Young John Lewis, you're so full of passion. In your lifetime, you will be arrested 45 times in your mission to help redeem the soul of America. In 1956, when you were only 16 years old, you and some of your brothers and sisters and first cousins went down to the public library, trying to get library cards, trying to check out some books. And you were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only, not for colors. I said to you now, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to continue to speak up, to speak out. You became so inspired by Dr. King and Rosa Parks that you got involved in the civil rights movement. Something touched you and suggested that you write a letter to Dr. King. You didn't tell your teachers, you didn't tell your mother and your father. Dr. King wrote through back and invited you to come to Montgomery. In the meantime, you have been admitted to a little school in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was there that you got involved in the sit-in. You'll be sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion, and someone will come up and spit on you. They'll put a light cigarette down your back, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on you. You got arrested the first time, and you felt so free. 
you felt liberated. You felt like you had crossed over. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. You probably will never believe it, but the boy from Troy, as Dr. King used to call you, will become the embodiment of nonviolence in America. Two years after you speak at the march on Washington, you will see the face of death leading the march for voting across the Pettus Bridge in Selma. We're marching today from Selma to Montgomery. We're marching to our state capital to dramatize to our nation and to the world our determination to win first prize citizenship. Troopers here advance toward the group you were going to die. But you would make it. You would live to see your mother and father cast their first votes. The change we need doesn't come from Washington. Change comes to Washington. You also live to see this segregated nation you live in. Still an African-American president and his family to the White House. And guess what? Guess what, young John? That some divine providence, as it is to send a message down through the ages, that man will be nominated on the 45th anniversary of the March on Washington. And all of those signs that you saw as a little child that said, white men, colored men, white women, colored women, those signs are gone. And the only places you will see those signs today will be in a book, in a museum, on a video. John, thank you for going to the library with your brothers, your sisters and cousins. You were denied a library card. You were sad. But one day, you've been elected to the Congress. You wrote a book called Walking with the Wind. And the same library invited you to come back for a book signing where blacks and white citizens showed up. And after the book signing, they gave you a library card. There you are, what a great story. After the book signing, they gave him the library card that they denied him as a 16-year-old. Um, John Wilson, uh, John Lewis's life is an extraordinary one. I think, I'm not sure whether he said on there, but he's been arrested 45 times through his life. But here's the extraordinary thing. It's something that I think 
Florence was talking about as well. He was arrested 40 times during the 60s. The first time when he was 17, which he talks about. But he's been arrested five times since he's been a member of Congress. He carries on being arrested. Because as you'll discover in a minute, he keeps on standing up for the people that have got no one else to stand up for them. He met Dr. Martin Luther King. And then, as he said, he went to Nashville, Tennessee, and studied law. And here is one of the sit-ins. The thing was that a law had been passed <coughs> by Lyndon Johnson in the first days of his presidency to end discrimination, to end any color bar on restaurants, to end any color bar on riding on a bus or a train. But in truth, in lots of the states, especially in the South, but not solely so, no one got on board with that. And when he got to university with his friends, he just organized a group that would go into the um, canteen at lunchtime and they would sit in areas that were saved for white people. As John says on the film, but here's a picture of it, that's actually a clergyman pouring hot water over this student. Black and white students protested together. They'd be burnt. They'd have cigarettes stubbed out on them. They'd have coffee and tea over, spilled over them. They'd be spat at. But that's where John Lewis learned what he says on that film. If you believe something, you need to stand up for it. You need to speak out for it. You have a moral obligation to do so. <clears throat> Not long after that, John got involved in what, it, um, what as one of the first freedom writer, uh, riders. Freedom riders were simply these. Since the, uh, 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 since the uh, bus boycott in Alabama, um, it was now possible for a black person to ride on the same bus as a white person and choose any seat they wanted. You would have seen from the signs before, but before that they used to have to sit at the back and then if the bus filled up and a white person wanted their seat at the back, they had to get off and wait for the next one. But even though that was now the law, <coughs> what happened was something different. In actual fact, if black people rode on the buses they'd still be tortured, they'd still be beaten up, they'd still be thrown off, they'd still be spat at, they'd still be whipped. And so students across the South began what, were called, uh, uh, began what was called the Freedom uh, Rider movement. Here's some of them. They'd just go black and white together and sit together on a bus. And it was that that led to the first time that John Lewis was arrested. But the incredible thing about John Lewis is he'd done all of this in his late teens and his early 20s. And when he was 24 years old, just a month after his 24th birthday, because of the leadership he'd shown and the way he'd stood up, 
he was invited to speak at Washington. In fact, John Lewis is the only surviving speaker from that day. The day that's remembered because of Martin Luther King's speech also listened to John Lewis, a 24-year-old, given the chance to speak to a quarter of a million people. But his big moment, his toughest moment, was to come two years later. Because down in the south, in Alabama, and various other areas, as I've already said, whatever the laws were, however the laws were changing, nobody kept to them. The Ku Klux Klan ran so much. Government was in league with, basically, the apartheid movement of the United States. And everything came to a head on what's now called Bloody Sunday. We uh, use the term Bloody Sunday for an event in Northern Ireland as well. But this is Bloody Sunday, 1965, March the 7th. And there is the bridge in Selma, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Why did the bridge in Selma become so important? I guess some of you have seen the film Selma. If you've not, it's really worth watching. But even when you watch the film Selma, I've watched it a couple of times, and you really can't get a hold of exactly why the Selma Bridge was so important. We talk about the march across the Selma Bridge. In actual fact, there were three marches across the Selma Bridge. And the first one was the clip of film that you saw, and it was led by John Lewis. There he is with his um, cream mac and his backpack. He carried in his backpack two books, an orange and an apple, and some toothpaste and, uh, and a toothbrush, because he knew he'd be arrested. And that's why he says it, he carried that backpack long before backpacks became popular. He led that march at the age of 26. The union, the students' union that he was part of, backed out of it. They wanted nothing to do with it because it was so confrontational. Why was it confrontational? It was confrontational because the city of Selma had voting rights. In 1964, a year before... President Lyndon Johnson had given all people voting rights, all, uh, uh, all um, ill treatment of black or colored people was swept away legally. You could no longer discriminate against a person on the basis of their color. But in 1965, still, in the whole city of Selma, only 335 black people were registered to vote. And the reason they were, couldn't register, of the thousands and thousands and thousands of black residents there, only 335 registered to vote. Because in Alabama, the governor, who was called George Wallace, you probably heard that name, he decided that if you were black and you wanted to register to vote, you had to register on Mondays or Wednesdays between 9 and 5. Knowing full well 
that most black people had to work long, long, long hours and couldn't get there. But even if they found time off work, there were literacy tests for them to do. And believe it or not, black lawyers, black doctors, and black school teachers failed the literacy test. They failed the literacy test because it was rigged. 2%, 2.1% of that city's black population could vote, even though the law said they could all, all vote. And so John Lewis organized this march across the Selma Bridge. Why did he organize the march across the Selma Bridge? Because this bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, leads out of Selma on the road to Montgomery. And Montgomery was the state capital, and that's where the state had its offices, and that's where George Wallace, the governor, lived. And so he led this march on the Sunday afternoon, March the 7th, across the bridge. But as they reached the far side of the bridge, you've just seen film of this, the guards approached them. Um, the guy standing next to um, uh, John is called Hosea Williams. And Hosea Williams asked the guard at this point, who told them they had to turn back and they had no right to march on to Montgomery, Hosea asked the guy leading the guard if they could have three minutes to kneel and to pray. They knelt together to pray. They asked for just three minutes to make their mind up about what they did. But as they knelt, the guards attacked them. They beat them. They flogged them. This is a picture of John Lewis being flogged. That afternoon, his skull was broken. But in hospital, recovering from this, two days later, Martin Luther King came to visit the boy from Troy. As John Lewis said, he didn't think he'd live through it, but Martin Luther sat by his bedside and said, tomorrow we'll march again. And so it was that John Lewis got himself out of the hospital with his fractured skull, and he joined the march the next day across the bridge. The march marched across to exactly the same point, and the guards faced up to them again. But this time, they knelt down to pray together, and then Martin Luther King, and Selma, the film, tells you this story, turned back because he didn't want to risk people's lives. But two weeks later, on March the 21st, they marched again. It's a color picture. And there's John Lewis on the end. This time, they marched all the way to Montgomery. John Lewis a young leader who took his responsibility really seriously. He said in the film that he was inspired by Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks, of course, I'm sure you know, is the lady who refused to get off the bus. It was Friday night. She was tired. She was being kicked off a bus. She refused to get off it. And that led to the bus boycott. She he was inspired by Martin Luther King. He was inspired 
by this. This is a quote from him. It was the music of the church that lifted us, that carried us. We felt like God Almighty was on our side. Our prayers, songs and hymns were central to our work. They fortified me. They made me stronger. They gave me the power and the ability, the capacity to keep moving. If it hadn't have been for my belief in God Almighty, the civil rights movement and my own participation would have been like a bird without wings. And they were also all inspired by this guy. This guy, you've probably never heard of, unless you read my book, The Lost Message of Paul. This guy was a genius. His name was Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman became the first black African-American theological um, professor of Boston University. And Howard Thurman... Years before anybody knew about Martin Luther King, wrote a book, and the book was called Jesus and the Disinherited. And what Thurman did was he invented a theology. Though as I tell you about it, you'll realize he wasn't inventing it, he was just reading the words of Jesus and Paul again. But Jesus and the disinherited was such a revolutionary, radical understanding of what Jesus is about that it said that Martin Luther King always carried a copy in his pocket. On the day he spoke in Washington, he had a copy of Jesus and the disinherited in his pocket. He always had it there. And here's the thing. If you get hold of it and you read it, you'll think he's using Martin Luther King's words except he wrote it 30 years before. It became the Bible to the civil rights movement. It became their theology. They took this theology and they embedded it in what they did. And it was built around a couple of great principles. The first one is from the reading that Tim read to us earlier. You've heard that it was said, said Jesus, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them also the other cheek, the other cheek also. And let's be honest, if you read that, you think, who's, who here is going to do that? If a guy walks up to you at the bus stop outside and gives you a great big thump on the right cheek, are you going to say, okay, that's, have a crack at this one as well? This is seen as a ridiculous piece of teaching. How could you possibly be that lame that you let someone punch you again? But the truth is, it's only because we lift Jesus out his con- outside of his context, which is what Howard Thurman never did, that we don't understand it. For this little bit, I'm going to need the help of an assistant. And I think the assistant should be Simon. Do you agree? <laughs> right. Give him a round of applause. <clears throat> so here's the thing. Jesus, uh, in the next verses that we didn't have time to read, Jesus goes on and he says, and if you're compelled to walk with someone one mile, walk with them two miles. And then he says, and if someone takes you to court and robs you of your outer clothing, give to him your inner coat as well. And we think, how stupid is all of that? But Howard Thurman knew it wasn't stupid. You see, Jesus wasn't doing what we think he was doing. Say, just be a sucker, lay down. He was doing something else. In Jewish Roman culture, 
everything you did was with your right hand. That's why we still shake hands with right hands and not left hands. Do you know why you shake hands with a right hand and not a left hand? Do you know why you do it? Because you all do it. Do you know why? Because you, use your left, you used to use your left hand for wiping your bottom after you'd been to the toilet. So the right hand was for food and for clean things, but the left hand was filthy and it was reserved for the very unpleasant things in life. There were huge social taboos through history around using your left hand for anything. Check it out if you don't believe me and remember it next time you shake hands. So what happens is this. Uh, um, A boss, a superior would look down on an inferior. Simon's not inferior to me, but for the purpose of this little illustration, Simon, you've got to be inferior to me. And this could be a Roman to a Jewish man. It could be a Jewish man to a Jewish woman. It could be a Jewish adult to a Jewish child. It could be a Jewish person to a slave. But the superior looked down on the inferior. Now remember, you don't use your left hand because that's for dirty stuff. Right? That's for dirty stuff. You do everything with your right hand, even if you were left-handed. You shook hands with your right hand, etc. You ate food with your right hand. I've just been in India this week. People still eat with their hand, but they always eat with their right hand, every single one of them. So here's the thing. Simon's my inferior. He's my slave. And I look down on him. So I want to punish him. So what I do is I backhand him. I slap him across his face like that with my right hand. Now, my blow is not designed to knock him out. He's my slave. I don't want to knock him out. I want him to keep working. Or it's my wife. Uh, Excuse me for saying that, but that's how it was. Or it's my child. That's what happened. It's my inferior. But I don't want to knock him out. I just want to teach him a lesson and I want to put him down. Because I'm superior and he's inferior. So what I do, using my right hand, is I slap him like that. I missed him, you see. (laughs) I I slap him with my backhand. It's it's not designed to hurt. It's designed as a put-down. You are nothing. I am everything. I put you down. So Jesus says... You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, he says this in a sermon on the mount to all the put-downs in society, to all the downtrodden people. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. So, here we go. That's the right cheek, you see. So, I slap you on that cheek. So, now turn to me the other cheek. And now I've got a problem. I can't backhand him. Because he's turned to me and he's put his cheek out to me, I just can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. The only way I can hit him again is by taking my fist and socking him like that. But in Jewish Roman culture, that was seen as an admission of equality. I cannot backhand him again because stick out your chin. He sticks it out. He's bold. And I'm stuck. Now, Jesus wasn't saying something that would last forever. He was just saying, learn how to be subversive. Don't retaliate with the same kind of weaponry that's used against you, but be subversive. 
be non-violent, but be subversive. Don't sit there and take it. Don't be a doormat. Stand up for yourself. Do something. And of course, if you do that to me, I might then give you a beating later. But you've stuck your neck out. And you've said, I'm equal to you. And the only way you can hit me again is to recognize my equality. That is what Jesus was talking about. Did you know that? Thank you, Simon. Give him a round of applause. (laughs) And so, the reason that Jesus said, and if someone asks you to go with them one mile, it's the next verse on from this, go two miles, was quite simply because in Roman law, remember the Romans are in charge, a Roman soldier could stop you in the street and could give you his backpack and force you to walk with him one mile. It was in Roman law. We got it written down. Could force you to do that. But the Romans uh, were pretty regimented people, pretty disciplined people. And a mile was all that the Roman could force you to walk. So the Roman approaches this poor Jew and says, I don't care what you're doing. Pick up my bag. Carry it a mile. And Jesus smiles and says, Offer to go two miles. Now, if a Roman forced a Jew to walk more than a mile, it was a disciplinary action. They were in trouble. They would have their rations dropped. So you'd end up with the situation of this Jew at the end of the mile, the Roman soldier saying, well, put it down here and I'll go on my way. And you're saying, no, 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 I'll keep going, I'll keep going. And suddenly the tables are turned. But Jesus wasn't saying these things for all time. He was saying, learn how to be subversive, but don't repay evil for evil. Confront evil, but don't be violent. And there was a second principle in Howard Thurman's book from Paul's writings. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ. And for Howard Thurman, this wasn't some ethereal Bible reading. It was reality. We are going to take non-violent action. We are going to fight for this to happen. John Lewis is remembered. But actually, he was just one in a crowd. There's a list of people arrested on a different occasion. I've ringed him in red. But each one of these people was arrested. And here's another one. It's all African-American women, students, every one of them arrested. And look back at this. It's all colors. It's not just a movement of blacks for blacks or a movement of Mexicans for Mexicans. This is a movement of humanity for humanity. All these people playing their part. Every single one of them playing their part. John Lewis said this, it was not enough to come and listen to a great sermon or message every Sunday morning and be confined to those four walls and those four corners. We had to get out and we had to do something. In 2017, John Lewis said this, it's for us, consider him speaking to you. We need someone who will stand up and speak up 
and speak out for the people who need help, for people who are being discriminated against. And it doesn't matter whether they're black or white, Latino, Asian, or Native American, whether they're straight or gay, Muslim, Christian, or Jews. We need someone who'll stand up and speak out for these people. The civil rights movement was a jigsaw puzzle of thousands and thousands of people playing their part. We need someone who'll stand up and speak out. So I'd like to close just by you looking at that piece of jigsaw. Because that piece of jigsaw is me. And that piece of jigsaw is you. And that piece of jigsaw represents your potential. Before we sing as we close our service again, let's pause and pray. What part will you play? Let's read again what John Lewis said. We need someone who'll stand up and speak up and speak out for the people who need help, for people who are being discriminated against. And it doesn't matter whether these people are black or white or Latino or Asian or Native American or whether they're straight or gay or Muslim or Christian or Jews. We need someone who'll speak up for them. I think you'll agree that our world still needs people who will speak up. Let's pray. I'd like you to think about your gifts, your skills. Remember we joked at the beginning about accountants, everybody laughed. But actually we need great accountants. We need great doctors, we need great nurses, we need great shop workers, we need great people who work in coffee houses and, and restaurants. We need people who work in libraries. We need people who work in hospitals. We need people who work on buses and on trains. We need people who work in offices who will bring in equality, who will stand up and speak out for what's right. What you do with your life is important. How you do it and who you are is even more important. What are you going to do? How are you going to use your piece of jigsaw in the big picture?